Hello and thank you for joining us for week three of our Messy series. I hope you enjoyed that title track of Brian Adams. It really is a great uh, message on selfless love. Thank you for venturing with us through this four-week series, examining the command to love our neighbor as ourself. And we're going to be looking at its uses throughout the Bible. The reality is loving others isn't easy. It requires selflessness and intentionality. Starting in the Old Testament in week one, and we've been moving through the Gospels and Paul's letters, this series has really been looking at how God expects us to fulfill the command of loving our neighbor today. And each week's discussion considers the different aspects of love as depicted in our text. Topics usually include justice, forgiveness, mercy, salvation, and self-sacrifice. And so we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 19 tonight, verses 16 through 30. So go ahead and turn there. Uh, And as you do, I want you to think of the big picture of Matthew. That in Matthew, Jesus brings God's heavenly kingdom to earth and invites his disciples into a new way of living through his death and resurrection. Matthew starts off with the details of how Jesus descends from the line of David, making him a king. It proceeds to share Jesus' teaching and prove that he's the authoritative teacher like Moses. And throughout the book, we see that Jesus is, in fact, Emmanuel, or God with us, and welcomes everyone into his, his new kingdom, a new kingdom that's upside down in its thinking, where actually the leaders serve. And so from calling of the disciples to the parables of the Great Commission, this New Testament book shows readers how the promises and prophecies of God made to his people in the Old Testament do come to pass through Christ. And so this is what uh, Matthew 19 says, starting in verse 16. Then a young man came to Jesus, and the young man said, Teacher, what good deed can come to do and assure myself eternal life? Jesus said, Strange that you should ask me what is good. In fact, there is only one who is good. If you want to participate in his divine life, obey the commandments. Which commandments in particular, asked the young man. Jesus said, Well, to begin, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, Well, I've kept all those commandments you mentioned faithfully. What else do I need to do? Jesus can see that the man wants to participate in God's reality, but knows his shoulders will sag under the weight of the next hard instruction. And this is that instruction. He says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor. Then you will have your treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. In verse 22, the young man went away sad because he was wealthy indeed. Jesus says, this is the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Yes, is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples hearing this were stunned. The disciples said amongst themselves, Who then can be saved? Verse 26. People cannot save themselves, but with God all things are possible. Peter says, You just told the man to leave everything and follow you. Well, all of us have done just that, so what should we be expecting? Jesus responds, he says, I tell you this, when creation is consummated and all things are renewed, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory, 
you who have followed me will also sit on thrones. There will be twelve thrones, and you will sit and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. You who have left your house and your fields, or your brothers or sisters, or your father or mother, or even your children to follow me, at that time when it is all renewed, you will receive so much more. You will receive a hundred times what you gave up. You will inherit eternal life. Many of those are the first will be last, and those who are last will be first. We see a few topics in our text in Matthew, uh, such as self-sacrifice and salvation and God's will coming to pass. I really think the big idea of this passage, though, is that Jesus' message to the rich young ruler wasn't only about his money, but it was also about his love for himself. Real love denies self for the sake of others, just like Jesus did for us to be saved. So here's a few of our points this evening. What is Jesus referring to when he says, this is impossible? Well, we see the rich young man had just been unwilling to leave his possessions and care for the poor and treasure God and follow Jesus. Jesus had said how hard it was for a rich man to actually be converted into a follower. He said it's so hard as a camel going through the eye of a needle. But then the disciples broadened the issue to everybody. Who then can be saved, they ask. And Jesus says, the point I'm trying to make about the rich is true for everybody, including you. The problem is not money. The problem is the human heart. So he makes the broad general statement. With people, this is possible. But with God, all things are possible. So then who can be saved? The answer is no one unless God intervenes to do what is humanly impossible, which is to save us through his Son, which is incredible, right? I think the next thing we need to discover in this is that Jesus knew really the one thing that most clearly defined the young man was his money. But wealth, again, wasn't the only issue. It was actually the condition of the man's heart revealed by his love of wealth. You see, where your treasure is, their heart is there also. And that's out of Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. I think Jesus was essentially saying, if you want to know where your heart really is, look at your bank account statement. What are the top things listed there? And that will probably reveal what you love. I think it can be summed up also in another way. Timothy Keller once said, Jesus Christ, who had all the power in the world, saw us enslaved by the very things we thought would set us free. I'm going to read that again. Jesus Christ, who had all the power in the world, saw us enslaved by the very things we thought would free us. So he emptied himself of his glory and he became a servant. Now, that's directly out of Philippians chapter 2. But he laid aside the infinities and immensities of his being, and at the cost of his life, he paid the debt for our sin, purchased us in the only place that our hearts can rest in his Father's house. Knowing he did this will transform us from the inside out because selfless love destroys the mistrust of our hearts towards God. Uh, that's an incredibly great uh, quote from Tim Keller. Um, especially that selfless love destroys the mistrust of our hearts towards God. So in essence, what if my will perfectly aligned uh, with God's will, 100%, and wasn't torn in the middle, or I had other obligations or things hiding out, uh, but fully gave my all to Him and consecrated all on the altar. 
And that would be incredible, right? I think another thing for us to look at um, this, this fourth question is, just as Jesus laid down his life for us, we are to lay down our lives for the sake of his kingdom, right? Uh, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me. But you see, that'd be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would serve on a certain quality of life, but if it really is true that I'm a sinner saved by grace at God's cost, then there's really nothing he can't ask of me. So we have to ask ourselves, if God gave his all, how much should I give in return? And the answer is, we give all as well. Um, I really think what this this parable of the rich young ruler is really after as well is this kind of concept of, of heaven and earth. Um, essentially, heaven and earth should meet and intersect to where... Uh, the love of God and the beauty of mercy and grace intersect a world of sin and brokenness. And love will infiltrate the dark areas of this world and actually change it to where we see in Revelation that um, we know that a new kingdom is coming, uh, one that Jesus is king and one that there is no sin uh, there's no crying, there's no grief, but there's joy and excitement and celebration, and everyone's invited to the table where Christ is, of course, our bride. And I think that uh, what he's really trying to get the rich young ruler to understand is rules simply alone don't get us there. It's interesting to note that whenever we look at uh, these responses that Jesus only mentions uh, the commandments to the rich young ruler that are actually human to human interaction. He leaves out the ones that are God to human interaction, and that is very purposeful on Jesus' part. So before we wrap up, let's look at two responses again and kind of break down the rich young ruler's response and Jesus' reply. So what can we really learn or take away from this brief discourse? We see actually a very polite, respectful, eager man who wants to leave Christ um, with joy. But we know that he actually goes away sorrowful. And we must ask ourselves why. The story makes it clear that he's young. And Luke tells us that he's actually a ruler in Luke 18 verse 18. He's possibly a magistrate or some kind of justice of the peace. But in the parallel account in Mark, we are also told that the young man came running up to Christ and knelt before him in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And this indicates some sense of urgency and respect, which is great. Then he shows submissiveness and a willingness to be taught when he addresses Jesus as good teacher. You see, this... This was not a typical form of address for the Jews at the time. A more respectful greeting may not be found actually in the entire Bible. This young man came not to tempt Christ, but to learn from him. We know that he wasn't a Sadducee because it is clear that he believed in eternal life and wanted to attain it. An unusual goal for someone of his position and his age. A man of wealth will often trust his riches 
and not be interested in what God has to offer. But the young man really looked beyond that and actually asked some great questions. You see, the rich young ruler was very sensible. He knew something must be done to attain this happiness that he thought about, that eternal life is not a game or a chance or blind fate. Romans 2, 6-7 tells us that we are rewarded for our works, good and bad, and that eternal life goes to those who are patiently continuing and doing good and seeking glory, honor, and eternal life. Jesus' reply, however, was different. Christ's response to all of this is actually quite interesting. He first establishes that none are good except God, and that all glory goes to him. Then Jesus tells him to keep the commandments, specifically listing the last six of the Ten Commandments, the ones dealing with human-to-human relationship. The Jews of the time were well-versed in the mechanics of the first four commandments. And in terms of the letter of the law, so Christ lists the ones in which they were the weakest, which is pretty interesting. It seems so simple, though, right, to have eternal life, to keep the commandments. How do you get today's professing Christians who claim that the law has been done away with get around this simple instruction? The reality is we can't get around it. Other verses, such as John 14 through 15, says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Uh, and this is really a straightforward directive. The rich young ruler tells Christ that he has kept the commandments since he was a child. What else should he do now? Jesus, interestingly enough, doesn't contradict the man. In Mark's account, he says he looked at him and he loved him. Possibly this man was inept at keeping the letter of the law, but he was coming up short and abiding by the spirit of the law. Perhaps Jesus saw that he was absolutely sincere in his efforts to abide in the commandments. Whatever the, whatever the case, Christ does not attempt to harp on the point. The way the young man phrased his question, what do I still lack? That could smack a little bit of pride, but in effect he's saying, I'm keeping the commandments and I've done well in regards to my life and your commands. Show me where I'm coming up short which I think is a great question for all of us to ask. What if we ask Christ, where am I coming up short? What do I need to do better to where I could bring you greater fame? But unlike what many of us would do, Christ avoids disputing the claim, but he gets right to the bottom line. The young man's love of the world. He tells him to sell his possessions, give his money away, and follow him as a disciple. Yet the young ruler was unwilling to do this. His treasure, you see, was here on earth. His money was tied up. His love of money had a stronger tug on his heart than Christ did. The Matthew Henry Commentary says this, When we embrace Christ, we must let go of the world, for we cannot serve both God and money. To the young man's credit, he wasn't a hypocrite. He didn't pretend to do anything that he wasn't doing. He was just real with Christ. And he knew what it meant, that Christ's high standards and his own ambitions and desires were incompatible with God's kingdom. Being both thoughtful and well-intentioned, he went away sorrowful. And so I think in response to this, we should ask ourselves some questions. Uh, the first being, am I unwilling to serve the poor 
due to my position in society. I think the second thing we can ask is, do we love security and wealth more than Christ? And this, in essence, sounds like a very simple question. But lived out, it's very difficult. Do we love security and wealth more than Christ? I think a lot of our answers probably would be yes. The third is, are we truly honest like the rich young ruler, or are we fooling ourselves? One of the incredible things in this story is the rich young ruler was simply himself, and I love that, um, that he just said who he was, and he really did want to know. He had given Christ 99% of his heart, but there was still one sliver left. If Christ was to ask us that question, would we be holding back too? I think our fourth question is, uh, do I trust God with the things that I deem impossible? Because he did state, with man things are impossible, with God all things are possible. And lastly, uh, maybe a strange question to finish up with, but uh, do you love yourself? I think that the key to loving others is also loving ourselves. As we are created with the image of God and we bear that image, uh, the Imago Day that we in turn are supposed to love our neighbor because they also bear uh, the image of God. And so when we love our neighbor, we love God. And so I hope that uh, week three of our message series has been thought-provoking for you. Uh, and again, if you have any questions, drop us a note. And uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next week for uh, as we wrap up our messy series. Um, and then we get to We Are the Church. And so, again, have a great night. I hope you've been blessed by this, and uh, we'll see you next week.